everyone, and welcome back to this second series of Ginger Gerald, You Lucky Bastard. In the first series, amongst many other topics, we explored the successes, failures and strategy behind making friends when you begin a new life in a new place overseas. And then last week, we went into a little bit more depth into how Ginger Gerald leveraged sport to break in to otherwise cold or not overly welcoming local groups and communities. I called the episode Breaking In, just to see how many international thieves might pick up on it and listen in to see if they could pick up a few tips on how to break into any luxurious holiday villas. So to all your thieves out there, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but I now know who you are and where you are. And thanks for bolstering my listener numbers. If you've not listened yet, then, well, you know what to do. Who remembers when international travel was a real luxury? A treat to look forward to. You know, when your ticket included a seat for you to actually sit on. And maybe you get a nice little sandwich and an iced bun to keep you going. And if you were one of the really lucky ones travelling long haul then you'd have been tucking into a three-course meal, scones with jam and clotted cream, and no doubt a nice glass of wine or two to wash it all down. And all this included in your ticket price, which maybe you bought in a high street shop where somebody actually smiled at you and was paid to work. Wow, that's amazing. Well, at the risk of being called an old fart, Ginger Gerald, you old fart! Did you hear that? I'm being heckled by myself on my own podcast. Well, there's nobody else here to do it. I'd say that there was, they were certainly the halcyon days of international travel, weren't they? When we travelled in style. It was an absolute dream to be heading to the airport knowing you were going to get VIP treatment for a bit, irrespective of how much your ticket may or may not have cost. And we're not talking ancient history here, guys. This is just in the last... I reckon 20 to 30 years. Nowadays, even if you travel business or first class, and believe me, Ginger Gerald's no expert on either of those two, then you still have to deal with hordes of other travellers trying their best to fight their way through passport control, customs, the shopping mall, which is called an airport, and all manner of additional security checks and paperwork, whilst being shouted at in a dozen languages by the PR system as well as real people who are employed, well, to shout at you, I think. And all that just to ensure you don't miss your no-seat, no-bag, no-snack, 6am flight to Alicante. It's a good job the airport bars are open nice and early, isn't it? Well, that's another story altogether. In all my years of travelling and navigating airports globally, there's one security guard that still sticks in my memory. His name's Steve, and he works, or he worked, in Terminal 3 departures at Manchester Airport. Now, Manchester's Terminal 3 is depressing enough at the best times, and it's designed for sort of arguments and pushing and just general unpleasantries between everyone. But Steve, for me, was the main man. This was his speech. Are you ready? He delivered this at top volume to both the assembled masses in Terminal 3 and individually to each individually family or traveller going through. He said, Have you got anything upon your person? Upon your person? 
What the hell does that even mean? Have you got anything upon your person with which you could kill or harm another person? Well, what a great question that is. In all his years working in Terminal 3, and I reckon he'd been there quite a few, do you reckon every, anyone ever answered yes? Who in their right mind is going to say, well, Steve, if you'll excuse me a moment, technically, yes, I do have a pencil to do my crossword with. And if I actually shoved it straight into someone's eye, then yes, I do believe it could harm someone. Oh, and I've got it on my person. For Christ's sake, Steve, what are you thinking about? Now, maybe I'm exaggerating just a little bit when I say that international travel was all glamour in the olden days. The very first time I went abroad, I was, I reckon I was about 13. So it was in the late 70s. Now, ours was a big family. So we didn't do overseas package holidays when we were kids. Me and my brother, who was a couple of years older than me, amazingly, he still is a couple of years older than me. Can you believe it? We went off to Belgium. So train from Stoke-on-Trent to London, walk from the train to the bus station, then coach and hovercraft from London via Dover and Calais to Brussels. Now, I can't remember how long it took to get there. It was quite a long time, but it was really exciting. And the same, of course, on the way back. And on the way back, all went amazingly smoothly until we finally got into Victoria Coach Station in London. Now, our dad had come down to meet us in London and join us on the final leg back home to Stoke. And he casually checked, as any parent would, that we'd still got our passports. Well, good news. My brother did still have his. Unfortunately, I didn't have mine. Even after emptying out the entire contents of all of our bags and our pockets on the floor somewhere near Victoria Station, I still didn't have it. So what did we do? We found a phone box that had yellow pages in it. We called the National Express lost luggage number and they said the coach we'd been on was due back to some depot in, up in North London somewhere in the next half an hour or so. So maybe we could go and check. So, me and my bro were sent off by my dad on our own by underground to try and find said depot and to retrieve my big old black UK passport, which amazingly we did. And with passport in hand, we headed back into central London to find my dad, who many hours later was still in exactly the same spot where we'd left him, eating a few plums and probably a bar of Kendall mint cake. I don't think he'd moved one inch since we'd been gone. I can't actually remember him being angry at me. Perhaps he was just too relieved that I got my passport back and that we'd returned in one piece. Well, two pieces, me and my brother. Remember, no mobiles, no WhatsApp to keep track of progress. He could have been sat there for a very, very long time. Thinking with my dad cap on now, I'm sure I wouldn't have sent my kids off on their own to the back end of beyond. I'd have definitely gone with them and I'd probably have been pretty angry too. I can only imagine what must have been going through his mind for those hours while we were gone. So anyway, why do I mention that memory and that trip? Well, the first time I lived abroad was in Paris about seven years later. 
And I came and went a lot that year between the UK and France. And it was always by either coach and hovercraft or coach and ferry, whichever happened to be the cheapest. I never flew. I think that would have been well out of my league price-wise in those days. And of course, just like now, but with flights, to get the cheapest prices, you had to travel at the most inconvenient times. For example, Tuesday night, leaving Placer Stalingrad at midnight. If Placer Stalingrad in the north of Paris means anything to any of you, then you probably know what I'm going to say next. It is probably the grimmest place in the whole of the city of Paris. In those days, it was National Express's international headquarters, and I swear, I've never seen more rats in one single square in my life. So maybe travel back then wasn't always quite so much of a luxury as I'm making out. And who remembers the smoking seats at the back of a plane? Now, I've never been a smoker, and I remember coming home once from a long-haul season as a holiday rep, and the only seat available was in the middle of a row in the smoking section. Ten hours of pure luxury, I assure you not. Now, I need to take a moment here, because I've got to remind myself that this pod is about moving and living overseas. So, of course, some form of international travel is always on the calendar of a person or a family who lives abroad. But of course, of course, it's not exclusive to people living abroad. So what differentiates an international journey for those living abroad versus one taken by people going on holiday or maybe for business? Well, I think one of those differences is emotion. It's very unlikely that someone going to or returning from holiday or from a business trip will be sobbing non-stop at the airport and all the way on the plane. But someone who's heading home after they've just visited their elderly parents and fears they may never see them again, well, they may well be doing just that. And someone, adult or child, who's just leaving all their friends and family behind to start a new life somewhere remote and as yet completely unknown, might also be doing just that. It's very common, in fact. So next time you're on a plane, play that little game and try to spot the international families versus everyone else on board. Now, I have a story that I've been putting off telling in detail for quite a while, but it feels that Yeah, no, we know each other a little bit. And now is both the time and the place for this story. For those who've moved internationally before, the following story may be rather too close to home for your your liking. And it may bring back some feelings of stress and anxiety. Now, for those of you who may yet to have done this sort of journey, but you may do it in the future, then this story may generate some feelings of stress and anxiety. So I'm sorry about that. For the rest of you, just be glad that you haven't or won't do it. The most emotional international trip we've ever had was the journey from Cancun to Mallorca in 2014. We'd been living in Mexico for six or seven years when we decided for a bunch of very valid and logical reasons that it was really time to get back to Europe. Mallorca was top of our wish list. Have a listen to my um, tea 
my wife T in the episode Spilling the Tea for a few more details on that particular subject. Anyway, we were eventually successful in getting a job in Mallorca and we set our date to move. The packing. Oh my word, I don't really consider ourselves to be hoarders, but the number of boxes we managed to fill, despite giving away or selling what we felt like virtually was everything that was not classed as a personal item. It's unbelievable the number of boxes we have. I'm not sure where it all came from, this stuff, to be honest. Anyway, we sent it on all ahead of us, a week or so ahead of us, to Mallorca via air cargo. And when it finally did turn up in Palma de Mallorca, quite a few weeks later than we expected, by the way, the boxes were rather battered, very wet, open, and it seemed rather light on contents. The Harry Potter books were definitely not there anymore. Our moving journey actually started about four or five days before the flight. Firstly, normal. We had to vacate and give our rented house back to its rightful owner and move into friend's house for a few nights. With all of our worldly possessions, minus the boxes we'd just sent on. Then, as these friends were due to go away themselves, we then moved into a hotel for our last couple of nights in Cancun. Now, I've not mentioned this until now, but we had two dogs at the time, too. One was a small, relatively well-behaved, a little bit yappy, very pretty Cocker Spaniel. The other, a young, mad, lovable, medium-sized street dog with a wonky backbone and a very strange tail that just looked like all the other street dogs you've probably ever seen wherever you've been. We had both of them since they were both tiny puppies, so at no point did we ever consider or suggest we wouldn't take them with us. But as those of you who've moved with pets before will know, this can be a little bit stressful too. Not only did they need a European chip inserting and a bunch of other expensive treatments and documents, but as they couldn't be in the hotel with us, we had to put them into kennels for the last few days before we left as well. We bought the right size travel cages for them, although I have to say I felt absolutely dreadful as they both looked so big in their locked up cages and they clearly didn't like being in them very much. And then when it came to travel day, we had to drop them off at the airport really, really early, I think five hours before the flight. And I can just remember them both staring at us when they went down the luggage belt and away into the ether. They were going absolutely mad. And if they could speak human, I hate to think what names they would have been calling us. And we, of course, were just desperately hoping that they'd survive the journey and we'd see them alive and well at the other end. We'd never done this before. Well, that emotional scene rather set the tone for the rest of the day. Suffice to say, there were a lot of tears, feelings of real sadness at leaving friends and a life and a lifestyle we got so used to over the years, and also real nerves about the unknown life that we were heading to. The flight itself was in theory going to be the easy bit. Cancun to Madrid, Madrid to Palma de Mallorca, with all our luggage and two dogs checked in all the way through to Palma. So that was double and triple checked with the staff at Cancun Airport before we left, so we had no worries about what that whatsoever. 
Until that is, when we arrived in Madrid after an uneventful flight, we were walking calmly and quietly through the arrivals hall in Madrid and we heard some very familiar barking sounds in the distance. Well, I think simultaneously we all glanced over in the direction of the extra-sized luggage arrivals belt and there were our two cages, complete with our two dogs going absolutely bonkers. And if the dogs were not going through all the way to Parma, then maybe our luggage hadn't been checked all the way through either. So a quick check of the normal luggage arrival belt revealed that we now had our hand luggage, six huge suitcases which were bursting at the seams, plus two very excited, loud and confused dogs in large crates. And of course, the whole world and his wife was watching and shaking their heads in disbelief at the entire scenario. And we, of course, we were tired and we were emotional. A bit of a perfect storm. So when the Air Europa check-in staff rather abruptly informed us that we were far too late to check in our dogs for the flight to Parma and assured us that the scales made all of our suitcases considerably heavier than the scales that had been used on departure from Cancun, then I'm afraid we did rather let them have it, which prompted them to then threaten to kick us off the flight completely. Dogs, luggage and the four of us too. Ooh, oops. Anyway, somehow, and to this day, I'm still not quite sure how we managed this, but I guess it was partly down to the fact that the onward flight was being delayed because of a storm. The airline staff, I think, decided they needed to get us out of their airport and out of their faces. So all of a sudden, they agreed to waive our excess luggage fees they'd been banging on about for ages. They said we could get the dogs all of our luggage and ourselves onto the flight to Palma as long as we ran as fast as we could to get everything done before the gate finally closed. Well, we were the last passengers to board the flight, so I bet we were popular. Emotions by now were very, very raw. Surely everything would now be fine when we got to Palma. Well, I mentioned it was stormy. It was a bit of a bumpy ride. But everyone and everything arrived and was offloaded successfully in Palma. The dogs got a quick walk and all we needed to do was find our minibus transfer that we'd booked, which we eventually did, although he'd given up on us as a no-show some while ago. And the final, final hurdle was to pick up the estate agent who kindly sourced us a house for the first two weeks of our new life in Palma. At midnight that night... After an emotional roller coaster of a journey which seems to have lasted almost a week, we'd moved. We'd done it. All that was left to do now was to start our new life. Folks, I'm emotionally drained. Not just because of telling you the story, but perhaps more so. It's brought back all of the details and the feelings at that time. The expressions on our kids' faces throughout the whole ordeal and the dogs haunting us with their barks. I don't think I can carry on anymore. So, that's got to be it for this week's. I'm not sure how you'll react to that story. I guess it depends very much if you have 
or if you plan to put yourself in our shoes, I reckon there are a bunch of lessons to be gleaned from that little horror story of international travel. And I'm pretty sure we do it differently next time. If indeed there is a next time. Right. Don't forget to keep in touch with Ginger Gerald, you lucky bastard, via all the channels available to you. I don't have to repeat them all. Have a fantastic week and I'll speak to you soon. Bye. Thank you, Ginger Gerald, for enriching our lives.